You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Welcome. I'm Ursula Rudenberg, your host for the next half hour. The Reckoning Project, Ukraine Testifies, is working to build a world where war crimes are no longer the prerogative of the powerful. Official investigations into crimes against humanity have often turned out to be too little too late. The Reckoning Project is looking to close this gap. The project is journalists, lawyers, and legal experts working to gather admissible testimony usable in courts and tribunals. The project's executive director is Janine D. Giovanni, renowned journalist, human rights reporter, and investigator who has covered many recent wars and conflict zones, including Bosnia, Syria, Yemen, Palestine, Chechnya, Iraq, Rwanda, Somalia, and many other places. She is author of nine books and has won wide recognition, including the Courage in Journalism Award for distinguished work in tracking war criminals. Ms. Giovanni spoke with me in December, a few days after she returned to the U.S. from Ukraine. Please be advised that listening to this discussion during the next half hour should be at your own discretion. Topics discussed include the pain and abuse of war, torture, and deep human suffering. Here is Ms. D. Giovanni. I started the interview by asking her to describe the Reckoning Project and how it came about. I was a war reporter for 35 years. I basically reported every violent conflict since 1990. So I have vast experience as a conflict analyst, also as an academic teaching human rights, which I have done for the past four years at Yale University, Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. On February 25th, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I got a very emotional phone call from a colleague of mine, Peter Pomerantsev, Ukrainian-born British academic who is an expert in Russian disinformation. He wanted to know what we could do in terms of documenting the Russian Kremlin war crimes. I had led a project called Enabling Witnesses for the United Nations in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. I trained journalists, first responders, firemen, people who are the first in line witnessing atrocities, and we train them how to identify war crimes and how to document them and verify them. Using that model, we've created the Reckoning Project. We've partnered with Ukrainian journalists led by Natalia Gumenyuk, an extremely well-known Ukrainian journalist. And we basically trained a team of Ukrainian journalists so that they wouldn't be reporting as much as being human right monitors. So the witness statements that they would take would be admissible in a court of law. Now, my motives behind it are simple, in fact. I hate bullies. And I believe that there are people who don't have a voice. And that if I have the ability to go there and give a voice, then that is my responsibility. I've reported more than 19 wars, and I have witnessed three genocides in my lifetime. Srebrenica in Bosnia, Rwanda, and the Yazidi slaughter. In all three occasions, I've seen the perpetrators walk away with absolute impunity. 
So the real purpose of the Reckoning Project is to absolutely squash this plague of impunity that exists with people being allowed to do horrific and get away with it. So I realized there was a niche between frontline journalists who are war reporters and those who could go to The Hague or other international justice mechanisms and give evidence. You need to follow certain requirements. You need to have certain templates when you're working with witnesses. So today, my Reckoning Project teams are 23 extraordinary Ukrainian human rights monitors. It was very important that we give justice in the hands of Ukrainians so that it empowers them and it gives them agency. It's their country. The Ukrainian domestic courts are very good. We are working with the prosecutors there and with the war crimes unit within the government, as well as working with other international justice mechanisms. So I think we do something that no one else in the world does because we take journalists who are already very good at interviewing, but training them so that what they see, the crimes against humanity, they're then able to document, we verify it, and then we work with prosecutors and lawyers to build actual cases. Again, one of my motives, for instance, the former Yugoslavia, where I spent many years working, there are something like 20,000 women in Bosnia who were raped in the rape camps in eastern Bosnia that Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic, his henchmen, set up. Women who were raped, held in camps, some of them raped 16 times a day, mothers next to daughters, next to grandmothers, next to children, and justice was never delivered. The histories of Bosnia and Rwanda are being rewritten by revisionist historians, genocide deniers. So Peter and I founded the Reckoning Project so that no one could ever say what's happening in Ukraine right now didn't happen. So that we can say we documented, we verified, and we're going to get you. Can you tell us a little bit about the people who are in Ukraine who are working with you, these journalists? Well, they are all investigative journalists. We're largely women-led because so many of the men are fighting on the front line. They come from all over the country. Some of our people have themselves been subject to Kremlin torture, deportation, interrogation. We also have people that are working on cases like the children who are being taken across the border of Ukraine while their parents are still alive and sent to Russia for adoption centers. You know, this is wrong and criminal on so many levels, but at the heart of it is something very terrifying, which is cultural identity being wiped out. That mm -hmm. is a war crime. Absolutely heartbreaking stories of hundreds of these kids we had three children who were taken from Mariupol to Russia, put on a list to be adopted, and somehow they got a cell phone. The kids called him and said, Dad, come get us. We're about to be adopted. That's actually documented on your website with a video, right? Yes. Our researchers are also videographers. So while we're taking testimonies, we also are filming. Part of the Reckoning Project is the documentation of evidence but it's also we make films, articles, and again, going back to my point before, so that people can't say this didn't happen.
the person listening to this interview can find some of this material. What is the website where they would find this? TheReckoningProject.com. We post all of our articles there and our films, but we will also be hopefully having a wider audience for our films in different venues. So just keep following us on Twitter at TRP. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're not hard to find. To be able to visualize what actually happens, how do the journalists that work with The Reckoning Project work? I assume they're probably some of the first people to enter a community like that. Yes, they are. So what happens is, let's say, Hairsong, which was recently liberated. We have teams spread out throughout the country, but we have our mobile team, I call them, who are in Kiev, Natalia Gominyuk and our videographer. They immediately get to Hairsong. In their case, they went straight to the hospital because doctors are usually very good witnesses. We would ask a question like, can you describe the soldiers that were here, their uniforms, their physical attributes? Can you describe their accents, their chain of command? Can you tell us what happened? So we don't use leading questions. And remember, my team is Ukrainian, so they're not journalists going with security. I mean, now, very difficult for war reporters and foreign correspondents to operate in Ukraine because all of the big newspapers and agencies make them work a security guard. Very hard to have someone's trust if you've got a guy with a gun standing next to you. So we're very nimble. We're fast. We know the country. We're local. So Kherson, Bucha, or Irpin, our people are from there, so they know the people. So when they talk to them, they trust that we are working so hard to get it into the right hands of justice and that we're basically utterly committed to speeding up the process so people don't wait decades Mm -hmm. to see these horrible acts go punished. What else do researchers have to do to build a legal case? Usually they go back two or three, sometimes four times to the witness to make sure that it's absolutely as detailed as possible. The witness statement is translated as well. So it goes from Ukrainian to English. It then gets passed to our legal archivist who is Syrian and who helped to build the first Syrian war crimes tribunal. We look for patterns. He verifies it using a variety of methods, which are his own, as well as using satellite imagery. We work with University of Michigan sociologists, a team of sociologists that are helping us with the archiving. We're also working with Yale Law School Shell Center for Human Rights. We then give it to the lawyers that we work with. We're working with a young Syrian barrister. It's very important for me to have Syrians involved in the Reckoning Project because of the similarities between what Putin did in Aleppo and what Putin is doing in Ukrainian cities. He clearly has a a playbook. Are you finding the same people involved? Putin did have a very specific general, Alexander Dvornikov, the butcher of Syria. Dvornikov was responsible for the destruction of Aleppo. At one point, he was leading the campaign in Ukraine. Mariupol is a different Colonel General Mikhail Mezintsev, known as the Butcher of Mariupol. But what I look at more is the patterns that Putin uses. So very clear at the forefront of it is an absolute indiscriminate attacks on civilians, hospitals and schools, basically knowing that if you killed a doctor, you killed a 100 people. 
Putin had a similar technique in most of the cities that he's attempted to crush. One of the hallmarks of Putin's destruction. I have friends who are neurosurgeons who are operating in basements with headlamps. I mean, these people are true heroes. There's also what we see as attempts to attack civilians when they're trying to flee. Columns of people in these so-called green corridors would be bombed. Sometimes the Russian soldiers would actually gun them down, even though they had clearly written on their cars, children in train stations where women and children were crowding into trains. There were missile attacks. This is helping us understand better what happened to people in Syria as well. We couldn't really get access to that much information about Syria. There was information coming out. I mean, I was working there until 2018, and there were many people working there. There were human rights monitors. It's just the world didn't care. What happened in Syria was a tragedy that the Syrians were left behind, abandoned. They didn't look like us. And I really, truly believe the world is galvanized behind Ukraine for many reasons. First of all, it's a fight for democracy, essentially, right? You know, so Putin basically invading a sovereign country where since 2014, people have been fighting back. I think that the world, especially Europe, saw these women and children flooding over the borders. They were blonde, they were blue-eyed, people could identify with them. They opened up their homes in Paris and London. I've never seen this before. And while I am absolutely proud that people did this, it makes me unbelievably sad they didn't do it for the migrants that came across from Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa in 2014, 2015, who were drowning in boats, desperate to get out of their countries. Libya and Syria and the Sahel and South Sudan and places where there's real terror and horror and war, and we've always abandoned them. I'd like to remind everyone there is still a war going on in Syria. People are still suffering horrifically, but we've just abandoned it. And the same with Yemen, with the Rohingyas, with the Uyghurs, with the Congo. We pick and choose our conflicts. I'm focused on Ukraine right now, but that doesn't mean I don't have horrific guilt about Gaza, another abandoned, forgotten place where life is absolute hell and people just don't care. I don't think there ever was a representative from the Syrian opposition that got the kind of support that, that President Zelensky gets, or someone representing Gazan civilians. So we have to look at Ukraine in the wider picture of why the fight is so important, because if Putin gets away with this, what would be next? And this is where it comes back to the Reckoning Project. If he gets away with this, it sends a signal clear and wide to every bad guy in the world that they can act with absolute impunity and no one is going to do anything to stop them. You are listening to Ukraine 242, covering the events and stories of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the people who are responding. I'm Ursula Rudenberg, speaking with Janine DiGiovanni, multi-award-winning journalist and author, and co-founder and executive director of The Reckoning Project, Ukraine Testifies, a collaboration between journalists, lawyers, and legal researchers to keep war crimes in public attention and gather evidence that is usable in court to prosecute war criminals. Although Ms. DiGiovanni is currently focusing on Ukraine, she has worked in many other war zones of the world, including Chechnya. Let's go back to the interview. 
I have a book called The Place at the End of the World, which is a book of essays of some of the wars I covered and the story of Chechnya is in that. That war was an extremely brutal one. The second Chechen war was Putin's first war. He had just come into office. I think it was very important for him to prove himself. Very similar to what they did in Syria, actually, to create a narrative that the Chechens were terrorists. And yet the Chechens I met were old women in potato cellars. As usual, the people who can run away from war are those who have money. And the people who are left behind are always the same wherever you go in the world. It's the poor, the elderly, the disabled, the left behind. So one story will haunt me for the rest of my life. After Grozny did fall, the Russians had conquered it. I went back in and one thing I came across was a house full of blind people. And because Putin used such fierce aerial bombardment, there were no roofs left anywhere and there were no staircases. And there were these group of blind people sitting in the freezing cold with their white sticks. And I said, um, what are you waiting for? And they said, we're waiting for someone to come and help us. Yeah. You just came back from Ukraine. What is important for us about what's happening there? I think you have to always put yourself into the shoes of what it's like to be an average person living through a war. What I'd like people to understand about what's going on in Ukraine now, if you're a mother, there's a constant fear, a constant anxiety. There's no electricity because Putin keeps hitting the electricity grid. So there's blackouts all the time. At one point, it would have been comical if it wasn't sad, meeting with a really high-level government official in a cafe lit by candles as we were wrapped in blanket with steam coming out of our mouths because it was so cold. Being cold all the time is very, very upsetting. Why don't people just kind of flip out, stop trying to... You're right about the cold. Cold is deprivation. Worse, I think, is the dark. So what keeps people going? Because people respond in very different ways. But I have never witnessed such tough people. Really resilient. I went out to talk to one of our witnesses in Irpin, and his house had been bombed. He had been shot three times. Every time he was crawling away from the Russian shooters, they kept shooting him, trying to pick him off, finish him off. Somehow, this guy was living in a makeshift hut. It was so cold that we sat there talking inside his hut in our gloves, hats, scarves, coats, boots, heavy socks. And all that was in his hut was a mattress piled with sleeping bags and a very large fat cat, which he said he kept because it kept him warm. This guy, um, one of the questions we asked him was, you've sustained such loss. You've been shot. You can barely walk. You've been shot in the shoulder, in the lung, in, in the leg. You lost your home. You lost everything in it. Your mother lost her home. He said, you know, there's people worse off than me. I have my cat. People built a hut for me to live in. I'm getting free physical therapy. I'm not that bad off. This man was so far from being a broken person. He was truly heroic. And then his mother came in. She was bringing him some food. She was living somewhere else with relatives. Her house had also been destroyed. And I said, what did you keep from your house? And she said, nothing. And she showed me her coat, her gloves. She said, everything I have on, someone gave to me. And she said, people are kind to people here. People got bombed and hurt and injured and killed. And their neighbors rallied around them. And it's... It's an extraordinary thing to see. And that is one of the things about war. Everyday acts of courage in war zones are absolutely amplified. 
people become everyday heroes. And, and I don't mean the soldiers. I mean, the people that set up air raid shelters, the people that do tutoring for kids that aren't in school, the people that, you know, make cups of tea and hand them out during air raids. However, having said that, you also get people who are evil, who open black markets, who make tons of money off war in 2001. In the aftermath of the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan, it was shocking how quickly the carpetbaggers got there. American contractors like our former vice president's company and, and others, knowing that they can make tons of money off this broken country and people made fortunes. There will always be people who see opportunity in war to make money. I mean, look at the Wagner group right now. You know, I think there is something that happens in war where people do lose their minds. What happened in Bucha exemplifies that. What can you tell us about Bucha? You, you were there. The Russian offensive tried to get to Kiev. They couldn't. They were cut off by the river. These soldiers were demoralized, drunk, angry, vicious, and they were set loose and they went crazy. The piece I wrote in Vanity Fair called After Such Knowledge, What Forgiveness is on our website. It gives a very blow-by-blow -blow description of what happened there. Um, I've written entire books about torture in Syria. So I know torture. You know, I thought I'd seen everything. Syrian prisons, notorious for the worst kinds of torture. But what I saw in Bucha was a kind of level of darkness that can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. Part of the job of the Reckoning Project as well is we are going to have a lasting memorial that will show what happened there for the purposes of memory so that it is not rewritten. The type of situations that you're documenting happen in specific places and particular people commit these crimes. How do you see the connection between those actions and the leaders who are ultimately responsible for them? Or how much of it is individual acts? Chain of command is the most important thing that we need to look at. It's extremely important. We ask even the lowly ethnic soldiers that operated under such cruelty in Bucha, what kind of uniforms they're wearing, what kind of flags they were flying on their tanks, what kind of accents they had. And then we try to establish who their commanders are. Having said that, we do get examples of what's called misconduct, where a soldier individually will go bananas and just rape, kill, destroy, torture, do horrific things. That also happens. I was in Chechnya, the second Chechen war, when it fell to Russian forces. And there were some villages where the only description I could give is the soldiers just lost their minds. In some cases, they were drunk on vodka and high on Demerol, completely blissed out, and they acted in the most savage way imaginable. What happened in Bucha was savage as well. But what we are trying to determine and what the prosecutors will determine is how far up the chain of command it goes. I can say we know Putin and his henchmen with their hate rhetoric, what they have stirred up. We liken it often to what happened in Rwanda and the hate rhetoric that came out, kill Tutsis, Tutsis or cockroaches. Well, what some of Putin's media leaders, as well as the Russian Orthodox Church led by Archbishop Kirill and some of his ministers are doing is hate rhetoric, absolute hate rhetoric that is no different than what Goebbels did during the Nazi epoch. 
What do you make of those people? You see so many people that aren't good. I, I don't have an answer for that. The worst thing that human beings do to each other is torture. And I have studied people that do it, grave personality disorders. But I don't think people are born evil. I think circumstances create that. And I think that the wars that I've seen, the truly evil ones came out of either nationalism or greed or the desperate need for power and money. And I think we can even liken that to what's happening in our own country right now. America has very strong institutions, our free press, democracy, rule of law, but they're being eroded. I'm a trained conflict analyst, right? So I'm very aware of signs for upcoming civil wars, and we have to keep an eye on what's happening in our own country right now. This is probably something that you get asked a lot. You've seen the human race probably at its worst. What do you tell yourself? How do you cope with this? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think for whatever reason, I was born with a huge amount of resilience. And I believe that when people come together in community, the strength is extraordinary. I'm a writer, so I get to write about it, to purge it. And I have a kind of internal mission because I genuinely believe that if I was someone who was from a village in Ukraine and this horrific thing was happening and no one was recording it, that helplessness I'd feel. So in my tiny way, I feel that I do something and I, I have had a purpose-driven life and that's been remarkable. In Chechnya, I was one of the few foreigners that witnessed the fall of Grozny and that was really the closest I came to dying. The Russian tanks had encircled the village where I was. They were bombing us relentlessly. They were going to come in in the morning and of course they would have killed me because I was a witness to what they did. And I was there without a Russian visa. So they would have said I was a spy and they would have killed me. And I remember like in the early hours of the morning, like four or five in the morning, all the emotions going through like, well, now I really am going to die. I've had, you know, I've been a cat with nine lives, but this is it. And something occurred to me, which was that at least I'm going to die knowing I believe in something. And that's not nothing. <laughs> How did that feel? Tremendous calm and peace came over me that I have accomplished something. I believe in something. I'd gotten my story out to the world that Grozny had fallen to Russian forces and the atrocities I saw. I would have died believing that I had done the right thing. And yeah. that's almost an untoppable feeling. So as executive director of this extraordinary team at The Reckoning Project, I think I'm one of the most privileged of people to be able to lead a team like this. And we're tiny, but we're bound by a deep commitment to justice and to making this work. You know, I was a journalist for so many years and I was so frustrated and bitter about how little justice was delivered to what I call the bad guys, right? That how often they walked away with it. And I was haunted by stories of women who told me that they had to see their rapists every day in the village because those guys were never indicted. And I thought of how many children I knew as kids in Bosnia who then grew up completely scarred by war. And I thought of how many people in Syria that I talked to who had been incarcerated and brutally tortured, whose lives were stamped out. Thousands of people over the years I interviewed whose lives have been broken by war crimes. And I wanted to do something that was deeper and would have more impact. The work can be found at thereckoningproject.com, right? Yes, or at Janine DG, D-I-G-I, on Twitter. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to speak. And thank you for the work you do. Absolutely. Bye. We have been hearing from Janine D. Giovanni, co-founder and executive director of the Reckoning Project, Ukraine Testifies, a collaboration between journalists, lawyers, and legal researchers who work together to keep war crimes in the public attention and gather evidence usable in court to prosecute war criminals. Di Giovanni is a multi-award winning journalist and author covering wars from the first Palestinian Intifada in the early 1990s to the siege of Sarajevo, the Rwandan genocide, the brutal wars in Sierra Leone, Somalia, Ivory Coast, to Chechnya, Afghanistan, and many more wars. Janine served as a senior fellow and professor at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and she has received many awards for her work, including the prestigious Courage in Journalism Prize. You have been listening to Ukraine 242. I've been your host and producer, Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network, standing in for your regular host, Anne Levine. Until next time, I thank you for listening.